You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Our next uh, reader... Uh, in many ways needs no introduction to science fiction and fantasy fans. Um, it's hard to believe, but she's been active. I think of her as the Janiceian of science fiction. If there wasn't already a Janiceian in science fiction, she doesn't look it, but she's been... Same height. A, right. She's been a figure in this field longer than I have. And, uh, well, I've, she's been uh, active in the field. At any rate, um, she's written both science fiction and fantasy to great acclaim. She, her first book, The Red Magician, was in fact uh, an American Book Award winner. Since then, she's uh, been in the top rank of the literary science fiction universe. The, the uh, in many ways, a writer's writer, and in other ways, also a reader's writer. <laughs> But I could go on, but it gives me great pleasure to introduce Lisa Goldstein. Thank you. Can I, can I talk about how I met my husband in this room, too? Yes, sure. <laughs> it's really weird. So, <laughs> so we were both working in bookstores, and, but different bookstores, and we got tickets to see Conan the Barbarian. They, they, the, book, the book company sent us so we would promote the book. You've been married a long time. Yes, this is a long time ago. <laughs> so the movie came on, and you know, at the beginning, it has that quote. It has a quote from Nietzsche that says, "You know, those things that do not destroy us make us stronger." And I, I just couldn't help it. I laughed, and Doug was in the room, and he remembered that laugh like years later when we met. Ah, <laughs> oh, okay. Anyway, feeling lucky. What? Is anybody else feeling lucky tonight? Yeah, really. I mean, it's, it's a pretty amazing room, I would yeah, think. Cool. Okay. So, um, last time I was here, I read the beginning of this book um, about um, this, the main character named Will goes and um, his friend has introduced him to these two, this family. Um, his friend Ben is dating one of the um, sisters, Maddie, and he starts dating the, another one named Livy. And um, they live in, the family lives in Napa, and this, it's, the book starts in 1971. And then, so the, um, as they go along, the two friends are starting to think that there's something a little strange about the family, and that um, they seem to have, like, a lot of luck, that, that they don't seem to do much, but things just sort of come to them. So, um, all right, so I'll read a little further on. The next Sunday evening, I stood waiting for Livy at a restaurant on Telegraph Avenue. It was Halloween, and the usual costumes passed by, ghosts and pirates and witches. This being Berkeley, though, there were also political statements, people wearing Richard Nixon and Spiro Agnew masks or dressed like Ho Chi Minh or Che Guevara, and one horrible-looking woman who looked like she'd been burned by napalm. And, of course, the crazies came out in force, dancing and mumbling and howling at the moon. Livy was 15 minutes late, then half an hour. It got darker and colder. Parties started around me, people drinking and playing drums and passing around dope, calling to friends and walking out in traffic to greet someone across the street. A bottle smashed against the pavement, and I heard a siren coming closer. 
I kept seeing Livy everywhere. Every woman who wasn't in a costume, and even a few who were, seemed to dress like her. It was as if they'd all found the same giant costume box and taken out things at random. Scarves and boots and bangles, patchwork and fringe, embroidery and tie-dye, stars and suns and moons. A lot of them even looked like her, with straight black hair parted in the middle, so that I grew excited and downcast by turns. I realized I had divided people into two categories, Livy and not Livy. It didn't seem an unreasonable way to look at the world. Fifteen more minutes passed. I was starting to get some strange looks, though I was by no means the oddest sight on Telegraph. Two people tried to sell me drugs, and one person wanted to buy some. A small woman came towards me. She wore what looked like padding on her butt and stomach. She had a gray bun up on her head and wore round steel-colored glasses. At first I thought she was in costume, someone's grandma, though it didn't seem terribly inspired. Then she turned towards me, giving me a look of concentrated malevolence. Before I knew it, I'd backed into a doorway, my heart pounding loudly. After a while, I roused myself and looked out in the street, but the woman was gone. I still felt anxious, though, and very paranoid, as if there was something or someone out there, something evil, watching me. I waited another 15 minutes. My paranoia grew to include Livy. Why hadn't she shown up? Was this her way of breaking up with me? Finally, I gave up and went home to call her. Oh, hi, Will, she said when she answered the phone. She sounded tired. What's up? Well, we had a date tonight, I said, trying not to sound too accusing. Oh, that's right. I forgot. You forgot? Yeah, I feel strange. I'm not feeling myself today. Who do you feel like, I asked. I realized I'd made a mistake before the words were out of my mouth. It's not funny, she said. I didn't sleep, much I didn't sleep very much last night. I kept having these horrible dreams. Sorry, I'm sorry. What kind of dreams? Awful dreams. I think, I think it's starting. I'm worried, Will. What's starting? She didn't say anything. Maybe you should see a doctor, I said, if you're worried about something. No, I'm just, just tired. Look, you have to take care of yourself. You can't go around taking care of everyone else like some earth mother. Like what? Like an earth mother. I felt stupid now. That was the way I saw her, but I never should have said anything. You know, with all your cooking and gardening and stuff. She laughed. Even her laughter sounded tired. Gardening? I never did any gardening in my life. And I cook because it's like chemistry, putting different ingredients together. I'm about as far away from an earth mother as you can get. Now I remembered going to the forest, thinking she could tell me about the trees. Okay, so I'd made a mistake. She didn't have to take such a sarcastic tone. Sorry, I said. Why was I apologizing so much? She was the one who'd forgotten about our date. Look, I'll call you tomorrow. Get some sleep. Okay, bye. One of her roommates answered the phone when I called the next day. I hardly ever talked to this woman, a foreign student who didn't seem to speak English. I'm sorry to say, in fact, that I didn't even know what country she came from. And when I talked to Livy, I used to call it Fredonia, the imaginary country <laughs> in the Marx Brothers duck soup. Can I talk to Livy, please, I said. Livy sleep, she said. Livy sleep? It was 3 o'clock. Well, maybe this was good news. Maybe she needed a rest after a night of bad dreams. Could you tell her that Will called, please, I said. Okay. I called Livy again that night, but the same roommate answered and said she was still asleep. With each phone call, my anxiety had grown, and by the next day, my worry had driven out everything else. I had classes until afternoon, but as soon as they ended, I found a phone booth and called her. I got the same roommate again. I was beginning to hate the poor woman, and I didn't even know her. <laughs> Livy sleep, she said. Livy's house was fairly close to campus, so I decided to walk there. I felt like two people as I went, full of optimism and foreboding in turns. One part of me, 
was sure it was all a mistake, that the roommate had misunderstood or forgotten to deliver my message yesterday. The other part kept wondering why Livy hadn't called, if she was too sick even to come to the phone. The roommate opened the door when I got there. I brushed past her, too impatient to try to make myself understood, and hurried to Livy's room. Livy lay on the bed, her face towards the wall. I walked as, quick, as quietly as I could towards the bed. Livy, I whispered. She turned towards me, her eyes opened, but there was no recognition in them. They were like two zeros, staring at nothing. Hello, Livy, I said. A strand of her hair fell over her face, and I brushed it away carefully. She didn't say anything. Did she have a fever? I put my hand against her forehead, but it felt normal. How do you feel, I asked. She stirred, but still said nothing. I, I leaned over and kissed her. A wild night and a terrible one, she said. Her voice was hoarse, as though she hadn't spoken for a long time. The cries of the horses, the screams of the riders. I looked at the roommate, who was standing by the door. How long has she been like this, I asked. Yesterday and today, Livy sleep, she said. Was she sleeping, or was she talking like this, with her eyes open? The roommate shrugged. I hurried out of the room, found the phone, and called the farmhouse. My fingers were shaking as I dialed. Sylvie answered. Sylvie's the mother. I, I sagged with relief, delighted to finally talk to someone who didn't speak Fredonian and an adult besides. <laughs> Sylvie, I said, hi, it's Will. I think there's, I think Livy's sick. Sick, Sylvie said. Oh my God, Will, what do you mean? How sick? What's wrong with her? Her voice fluttered. She sounded as helpless as she always did. I knew then that although I thought of her as an adult, she wouldn't be able to help me, that I was still on my own. It was a terrible feeling, like finding, the, finding out the floor wasn't solid after all. She's, well, she's babbling, talking nonsense, and she's been sleeping a lot, too. She slept about two days. Oh, God, Will, look, I have to call Maddie, ask her what to do. Maddie, why? She's in Los Angeles. She won't be able to help. No, not Maddie, you're right. Should I take her to a doctor? We have a doctor here. That's it. That's what we'll do. Could you bring her up here to the farmhouse? Sure, I said. I had no idea how I'd manage it. I'd have to borrow Ben's car, and he had no reason to like the fire robins. But it was an emergency. He'd understand. He'd have to understand. Okay, I said, and hung up. I ran out of the house. Then I remembered that today might be one of the days Ben worked on campus in the cafeteria. I hesitated. My brain pulled in a hundred different directions at once. Finally, I ran back to the phone and called our apartment. And when he didn't answer, I headed towards campus. I pushed my way through the circus on Telegraph Avenue, past panhandlers and political activists, the bikers and tarot readers and guitar players. I hurried into the cafeteria, and there, to my great relief, stood Ben, talking to someone with his back to me. I went up to the counter. The other man turned. I got a quick impression of an older man, somewhat plump. Will, Ben said. He looked startled to see me. Then he grinned and indicated the man standing in front of him. You have to meet this guy. This is Professor Rothapfel from the German department. Ben, listen. He's an expert on German folklore, on fairy tales. He has some theories about... Listen, it's an emergency. Livy's sick. I have to take her up to Napa to the farmhouse. Can I borrow your car? Sure, Ben said. Sure, but I'm coming with you. What? Why? I want to see the house again. I miss it, and Maddie won't be there. I sighed. Okay, whatever you want. Only let's hurry. Um, I got, okay. She, they go to the house, and then, come on, Livy, I said. We have to go. I got an arm under her and eased her up, and between us, we managed to carry her outside. She was as limp as a sack of laundry. I maneuvered her into the back seat of Ben's car, and she immediately lay down again. I got in with her and put her head in my lap. We drove away. 
No one said anything for a while. When we left the freeway, I heard Livy mutter something, and I bent closer to hear her. Her what, I said? Her voice grew stronger, up the hill and down the hill and roundabout and back again, she said. What's she saying, Ben said. I don't know, I said. She repeated it louder this time. It sounds like a nursery rhyme, Ben said. You know, you really should talk to Dr. Rothapfel. He's the expert on the Brothers Grimm. Did you know? I'm not really interested right now, Ben, I said. <laughs> right, okay, I'll tell you later. Finally, we reached the farmhouse. Sylvie and Rose were waiting outside for us, the dogs pacing re restlessly around them as if they sensed something was wrong. I expected Sylvie to help me with Livy, but she just stood there, her hand to her mouth, her eyes wide. Her hair had come loose from its usual bun and hung around her shoulders. Ben and I got Livy out of the car, up the stairs to the farmhouse, and then inside. We headed towards the stairs to her bedroom, but Sylvie nodded to one of the couches in the living room and said, no, just set her down there. You sure? We could take her upstairs. No, it's okay. Are you going to take her to the doctor? The doctor's coming here. Great, I said, feeling relief for the first time that day. The farmhouse had always been such a welcoming place. I think that on some level, Ben and I expected to be invited to dinner and to sleep over. Sylvie just stared at Livy and said nothing, though, and I realized that we certainly couldn't expect anything, not at a time like this. Could I, Ben said, it was a pretty long trip. Could I use the bathroom? Sylvie nodded, looking at Livy. I told, Livy, I told Sylvie about Livy's symptoms, even mentioned, because the doctor might want to know it, the possibility that Livy might have taken some drug. She nodded again, but I don't think she'd heard a word of it. Um, somewhere in the house, a clock rang the hours, five o'clock. I wondered where Ben was, if he'd gotten lost. I'm sure she'll be all right, I said awkwardly. Finally, Ben came downstairs. Okay, he said, let's go. Bye, I said, good luck. Thanks, Rose said. My heart went out to her. One sister gone, the other was ill, and her mother hid from the world in a cloud of vagueness. Rose was far too young to have to go through this alone. Let me know what the doctor says, I said, and we left. We got into the car, but Ben made no move to start the engine. Instead, he pulled out something from under his coat. It was a faded brown accordion folder, tied with a red string that wound around two circular tabs like an infinity symbol. What's that, I said. It's from their library. Dr. Rothaffel said, you stole it? You stole it from their library? Well, yeah, I thought you wanted to know what's going on. Not if it means stealing things. I can't believe you did that. Look, they're never going to tell us anything, right? The only way we'll ever learn what's happening here is if we find it out for ourselves, and maybe this will help Livy. He knew me all too well. With that last sentence, all my scruples vanished. <laughs> he, seemed to, he started to unwind the string. Let's get out of here first, I said. The doctor's coming, remember? You don't want them to find us still in their doorway, in their driveway. Just a minute. He opened the folder and took out a pile of paper. The top page was in German, in that spiky handwriting that looks like a seismograph after a minor earthquake. He riffled through the rest of the pages. Shit, he said. They're all in German. <laughs> he put them back in the folder and threw the folder into the back seat. I'll get Dr. Rothaffel to translate it, he said. He started the car and we drove off. Why do you care, I asked, and why are you talking to Dr. Rothapple about all this? How did you meet him anyway? He was silent a moment. Finally, he said, I just want to know what's going on, what they're hiding from us. He wasn't telling me the whole truth, I could tell. You're hoping to get Maddie back, I said. This time he was silent for so long I thought he hadn't heard me. Yeah, he said, yeah, I am. I miss them, the whole family. It's weird, you know, that you're the one going to visit them on the weekends now talking to them, eating their dinners, sleeping with their ghosts. I was the one that found them. 
I couldn't concentrate on Ben's problems for very long. Do you think she'll be all right, I asked. Sure, he said, sure she will. So then um, the Dr. Rothapple translates the fairy tale, and I'll read the fairy tale, and then I'll stop. It's called The, the Bondsmaid. A long time ago, there lived a poor woodsman. One day he was walking in the forest when a man came out of the trees and hailed him. Good day, the man said, and how are you doing today? Very poorly, the woodsman said. My family and I have not eaten for three days, and if I do not find food for them soon, I fear we will all die. I can help you, the man said, but you must promise to give me the first thing you see when you return home today. Certainly, the woodsman said, but how can you help me? Go home and see. The woodsman hurried out of the forest. His heart was light for the first time in many days. He thought to look at the tree growing beside his house when he returned home and so fulfill his bargain with the man that way. But as he walked up the road to his house, his daughter came outside and hailed him. Good day, father, she said. Have you had any luck in the forest today? The woodsman groaned aloud, but at the same time his wife ran outside and called to him. Husband, come look. Every chest we have is filled with gold. The woodsman went inside and saw that it was true. He reached into a chest and pulled out a handful of gold coins, and the chest filled again to the top. His wife laughed and grabbed more gold and yet more, and every time she took the gold from the chest, it filled itself again. Why are you frowning, husband, the wife said. Look, our troubles are over. The woodsman said nothing for a long time. Finally, he took his wife aside and told her about the man he had met and the bargain they had made. What does it matter if we give him our daughter, husband, the wife said. We would have starved, all of us, if you hadn't met this man in the forest. At least this way, two of us will survive. And perhaps the man will not treat our daughter so very badly. The days passed, and the woodsman expected the man at every moment. But he did not come, and the woodsman thought for a while that he was safe, that the man had forgotten them. Then one morning his daughter did not wake up, and nothing he or his wife could do would rouse her. The daughter slept for days, for weeks. The woodsman went to the forest every day to look for the man he had met, but he never found him, and meanwhile the daughter slept on. Finally, one day, a year after the, the daughter had fallen asleep, the woodsman found the man again. You must help me, he said. My daughter will not wake up. You promised me the first thing you saw, the man said. That was our bargain. I did not know it would be a, my daughter, the woodsman said. That doesn't matter, the man said. A bargain is a bargain. But why do you want her? Why does she have to sleep like that? Every night we fight a great battle, the man said, and every night she helps us. It seems to you that she sleeps, but she is with us, aiding us. Without her, we would be lost. How long will she sleep? For the rest of her life? Do you want to take back your bargain? Do you want to be as you once were, a poor woodsman? The woodsman now lived in a grand house in the center of town. His wife wore a new dress every day with ropes of pearls and jewels at her neck, and she ate fine food every evening at dinner. She would be angry with him if she lost it all, if they became poor again. No, he said, no, I stand by the bargain we made, but is there nothing I can do for my daughter? There is one thing, the man said, we can change the bargain slightly. How, the woodsman said eagerly, I can make it so that your daughter sleeps for only seven years. But in return, you must promise me your descendants, a daughter in every generation, a bond made to us. Each of them will sleep for seven years, and in exchange, their families will prosper to the ends of their days. Very well, the woodsman said, and so it has been from that day to this.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. 